I'm going to follow through on that, on that Sunday. Someday here, I'm just going to let it go, and we're going to see how long we go with the uh, interaction time. It'll be our sermon on fellowship. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Vineyard Church. Uh, if this is your first time in a while, you may not recognize me. I'm uh, typically in Wilmore, Kentucky, uh, attending seminary, and I'm back home for a break, giving Sean a rest. We believe in uh, rest and restoration before we burn out. Sean's doing very well. Uh, he's just taking his sabbatical for the year. He'll be back with us uh, in August. Uh, but while we've been here, we've been going through a series uh, this July on the concept of identity, looking at aspects of who God is uh, and what those things tell us about who we are. On the first uh, Sunday this month, we looked at God's identity as creator uh, and we his good creation, that he looked at us on the sixth day and declared us to be very good. We are made that way, that we are his essential creation, created for good works and stewardship of God's world, integral to his vision for creation as a whole, and that we are his cherished creation, loved and provided for, even in the midst of our sin. And last Sunday, if you weren't here, we looked at the fact that we are God's valued creation, that we have been given a value with purpose and meaning, that we are not stagnant. You have been bought and paid for with Christ's blood, but not so that you could be set on a shelf somewhere to collect dust. That you have not been redeemed to be tucked into a cave somewhere until Jesus comes again. But that since the beginning, God has desired for us to step into the good works he has prepared for us, for each of you, and to be an active part of his creation today. We looked at the fact that we have been given a value that isn't trivial. And Mary, Jesus' mother, was the example that we went to there. Talk about an integral role, bearing the Son of God himself. The value that God weaves into you is not trivial or coincidental. He hasn't positioned you where you are in the community of Redding, California, in your workplace or in your family, only to serve as decoration. He has invited you to be about the family business of his kingdom, restoring a broken world, and to stand as a loving, ever-gracious presence in the lives of your fellow human beings as he draws them back home in reconciliation to the Father. And we looked at the value of this but it's made to last for all eternity, that God's vision for you isn't you in his life and his, in his creation always. And so today, we're going to ask questions. It's the so what question. Had the opportunity to sit through some and I confess there are moments that what I need a connection. Trinity. How does that change my daily life with Christ? I got to have some way to. Talk about that a bit this morning. But first, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gift and truly for the privilege of gathering together in your house to worship you and to praise you and to study your word free of harassment, Lord, free of persecution. There will be no secret police following us home as we leave this place today. We are grateful for that, Lord, and we recognize that that is not the case for all of your children around the world today. We pray for your provision and your protection over those who risk a great deal 
to go to church on a day like today. And we pray that you'd make us good stewards of this provision, the security and the safety and the liberty of gathering together in your name freely in this country. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, seminary was an unexpected and sharp and abrupt turn in my life. Uh, my undergrad, for those who don't know my story, is in computer science. I spent the last 15 years working for software companies. I have an associate's degree, not a bachelor's. I'm a profound introvert. I am standing right now in the scariest place on earth. There's nothing about the trajectory of my current life that I would have guessed would be the case about five years ago. I just didn't think that that's where I would be. And because seminary was so unexpected, on day one, I was already asking God the question, now what? What, what do you want from me? You know, what is, what is down the road four and a half years when I'm done here? Where is this headed? Because there was nothing about that turn that made intuitive sense to me. So it was just all up in the air. And, I, and from the beginning, I thought about that question, the now what question in terms of doing stuff. What will the job be like? What will the tasks be like? What will God ask of me as an associate pastor? What, what can I do to fulfill that role? And the question has changed a little bit, but it's still there. And now I'm asking it because I'm approaching the end of my degree. God willing, I'm approaching the end of my degree. And next year in May, I'll walk across the platform in Kentucky, and I'll be done with the degree, but only just beginning the ministry. And so now I'm asking the now what question for an entirely different reason. As I've been asking God that question and meditating on it, uh, last semester in particular, I felt like the Lord brought me to Micah 6.8, um, which I'll read to you here briefly now. Let's see here. I always forget my slides. Oh, I did it again. <laughs> there are words at the bottom of that blank set that says, remember announcements, and I still didn't do it. So let's do announcements. So if you're new, I swear I'll get this down. If you're new to our church, we'd love, to, we'd love to know you and see you and meet you. And we'd love for you to connect with us. We'll keep it simple here. There's just a QR code if you want to scan that. That'll help us get connected to you uh, and reach out to you. And thank you for being here with us today. Uh, we have uh, an awesome ministry coming up. Uh, Joe back there. Joe, if you want to wave your hand. He's a part of a beautiful ministry where uh, a group from this church and I think some other volunteers as well come together to help serve the homeless community. Uh, in Reading by washing clothes, meeting a very uh, practical need uh, for those people who don't have the privilege of going home to use a washing machine. They come together, they put hundreds of dollars into these machines for them so that they can have clean clothing for free. That's happening this Monday. If you want to be a part of that or you want to find out more about what goes into that or if you'd like to donate to that cause, Joe's the person to see about that. Uh, and we've got a phone number up there for you uh, if you want to take that down. A couple seconds here. All right. We've got a women's pool hangout coming up on July 29th at 5 p.m. at the Williams House. There's the address there. The Williams are in the back. If you want to look back there, feel free to get connected. Uh, we'd love to have you be a part of that. Uh, and then one more thing. It's not up there, but we're continuing our spiritual warfare class after service here today. Uh, at 11.45 or so downstairs. If you go down these stairs here to the left, the first door down there, it's, it's marked the prayer room. It'll be open. You'll see us in there. We're going to be talking about spiritual warfare. Our brother Kevin will be leading it. It's the second of four classes that we're doing. We'll be down there for about an hour. Today, you're welcome to join us. I think we are now caught up. So Micah 6.8, I'll read it to you here briefly. 
This is in the New Living Translation. Know, O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you. So very right away, the passage speaks to that part of my heart that's wondering, now, now what, Lord? What can I do? To do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, I've read that verse. This is another one of those verses that I've come across again and again, and I've heard preached on, I'm sure, as many of you have, again and again. Uh, and there are things that still jump out to me brand new as I begin to study these passages again. Now, I'll confess, uh, and I confess this for the sake of anybody who ever feels embarrassed that they are not yet a perfect scholar of the word. Going into seminary, there were entire percentages, I won't name them, but rather large swaths of the Bible that I had not read yet showing up at seminary. And I hadn't really read through Micah extensively either, but I'd heard that verse, and that's about all of Micah that I knew. So having only that, that verse to work with, I always used to imagine this must be part of some like serene hilltop lesson where a prophet was sitting in his robes up on a gra grassy hillside and the students were gathered around and they were going, what does God ask of us, O wise one? And, and the prophet said, this is what the Lord asks of you. Not the case at all. I'll try to keep it brief, but the backstory on this is actually the fury of the Lord. God is rather upset with his people once again. There's a pattern here with Israel of them drifting away from the Lord and them having to call them back and discipline them and then restore them back to the path that he wanted them on. And Micah 6's header actually in the Bible is the Lord's case against Israel. God is laying down his case as if in a courtroom against his people. They've turned away from him. They've drifted away. I'll read a portion here out of the first chapter of Micah that kind of sets the stage for this entire buildup. This is from Micah 1, verse 1. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him, and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? And what is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. That's pretty far from a serene setting. God is indeed furious with Israel. And we come to a moment after six chapters of God's fury and building his case against the people when the prophet in Micah takes on the persona as if he's speaking on behalf of the people and begins asking questions like, oh Lord, what can we possibly do to get right with you? What, how many goats could we sacrifice? How many streams of precious oil could we pour out? How about our firstborn children? Do you want our firstborn children, Lord? Is that what it would take to get right with you? What task can we pursue to make things correct? What do you want from us? And Micah 6.8 is a fascinating response. It's, it's the reply of the Lord to that question. But it's interesting because his answer doesn't really come in the form of specific tasks to be undertaken. It doesn't build a checklist of things to do before finally being restored to his good countenance. Rather, it's, it's more descriptive of a who, not a what. Who should you be? And this premise of the message 
is what I believe God has been saying to me through Micah 6.8 as I've asked God, what should I do now? It seems to me that God has been replying, it's not really about what you're going to do. It's about who I want you to become. As I read the word, as I study at seminary, I've become more and more aware that it's a rare thing for God to give a specific task to people. It's not all that common that he says, go here at this time and do this thing. The bulk of time, the bulk of the story of creation takes place between those high points when people are just living their lives. But it's clear that in all of those in-between places, in all of the meantime, between the specific directives, God is persistently interested in who his people are becoming. And Micah 6.8 describes a who. It describes a people. So let's pick that verse apart a little bit, if we may. So once again, know, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. You want to know how to get back in my good countenance? It's not about you doing a thing. It's about you becoming a people. And the first commandment there is do justice. There is a, there's a tendency among seminarians that as you approach your senior year, you're asked to do certain tasks like onboarding new students. You're invited to be part of what are called tag teams. When new students show up with their parents and spend their orientation day, oftentimes it's the senior students who are asked to give the tours, to walk people around, because by about four years in, you kind of know where things are. It's a big campus, and I still get lost sometimes. But I've had the privilege of serving in that capacity. And as I give tours on campus, I'm always careful to point out the most important classroom on campus, if you can guess which one that might be. If you guess the cafeteria, you're right. In the cafeteria, unlike almost any other classroom on campus, you find students of all different disciplines, of all the degree programs, of all the focuses and backgrounds coming together around very large tables that seat about eight each and discussing things. And it's an amazing environment. Some of the best conversations I've had about theology have been in the presence of counseling students. Counseling students have a way of seeing the aesthetic experiential reality of a thing. The theologians are wondering about the correct interpretation of how then shall we live. But the counselors are the ones going, but that's hard. It's difficult to do that. That feels a certain way. And it kicks off fascinating conversations and sometimes, to my increasing delight, debates about things. I have developed an increasing joy in provoking debates and I confess it's a bit of a disease. I particularly like sticking my foot in the most controversial issues imaginable. And as you are all probably aware, we've got a few social controversies going on uh, in our midst. So the next slide is just symptomatic of my desire to put my foot in a thing. There are going to be some words on the screen. I'll make it quick. I don't mean to hurt anybody, but it's just an example of how quickly a, a concept like justice, if I say justice in this room, there's maybe, I don't know, 40 of us in this room, 40 or 50 people, all of us go, oh yeah, yeah, justice. Justice is important. I know about justice. But if I were then to take you aside one by one and ask you to describe what is justice, I might get 20 or 30 different versions of what that word means. It gets complicated very, very quickly. And one of the most prominent social justice issues of our time, and a hot buzzword, is this business of equality and equity. So an example of what I might do if I wanted to throw a grenade into the cafeteria, philosophically speaking, is to sit down with a group of students and ask them, which is more virtuous, equality or equity? And then it would, that's good for at least three hours in the cafeteria at seminary, and we would just be going. 
and verses would be cited and people would be getting heated. And truly, one of the greatest treasures of the seminary experience has not been, I understand the 15 books a semester were assigned are important. And Thomas Aquinas is a very good person for me to be familiar with. But the conversations among my peers, and sometimes the professors will sit down at the table and they'll get into it. And I've, I've been a part of at least a couple of conversations where two professors would get involved at each other against each other and students would kind of get, it's just, it's glory. And what's amazing about that is that Asbury Seminary has succeeded in creating an environment where it's okay to disagree, where you can disagree over some pretty non-trivial critical stuff and the people around the table will make it clear to you that you are still loved. You have not lost your standing in their eyes. You are not diminished in the kingdom for having read the scripture differently than they have. It is amazing to be able to really lay out your convictions on a table and not be afraid of what's going to happen if your convictions are different than somebody else. I have absolutely loved that. But again, I put that up there primarily to demonstrate how quickly a concept like justice can become very, very complicated. It's a two-word commandment, so it's simple in that sense, but it certainly isn't easy to feel that out. Today, however, rather than getting any deeper, deeper now into the issue of justice, I want to focus on a different word. I want to focus on the do word. Now, I have made a promise to Sean that I will not overly burden my sermons with 15-syllable academic words, and I will not do too many language studies. I've done none this summer so far. But this is one where I think it's worthwhile, and I think it illustrates a point. We have probably all of us seen sermons built around one word. And because we're in America, it's typically the English version of the word. This is a tricky thing to do if you haven't gone back and looked at what was actually written. You might be surprised to learn that Micah 6.8 was not written in English. And it wasn't written by 21st century Western thinkers. It was written by ancient Near Eastern thinkers in Hebrew or in Aramaic. And so it's worthwhile to go back and ask ourselves, what did they say? And what did they mean? And in this particular word, it's interesting because I've run across this slide, run across this translation where it doesn't say do, but rather it says something like seek, seek justice or promote justice. Well, are we splitting hairs now? Does it matter? Is it a big difference? In this case, it is a huge difference. And I want to talk about that a little bit, but just to flex seminary muscles a little bit, this is, this is like the one muscle I have and it'll be over. So there it is in Hebrew. And if anybody wants to take a try, anybody want to roll? I can't either. Don't worry about it. Here's the word. Here's the word. The word is saw. It's a verb. It's literally the Hebrew word for to do. It's not the word to seek. There's a different word for searching. It's the word to do. Now, Hebrew is interesting in that it is so darn contextual. You really have to be immersed in the culture to intuitively discern what the specific meaning was. And here's an example. All of these words underneath there are the correct definition of a saw, all of them. But there's a common theme that I want to call your attention to. A saw can mean to do, to fashion, to accomplish, to make, to work, to deal, to act with an effect, to produce, to prepare, to attend to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But all of them refer to the person doing something themselves. Recall that the verse says, what does the Lord ask of you? And the answer is, you are to be a people who do justice. Now that's different than seeking out justice or promoting justice. Why could those interpretations be potentially problematic? Well, in English, the idea of seeking is to kind of search for a thing, to get it for yourself. 
if you're seeking for treasure, it's because you want the treasure for yourself. And we've got a bit of an epidemic with entitlement in our culture. To seek justice might turn the whole concept inwardly. Go find justice for yourself. Go get what's yours. You're entitled. It belongs to you. That's a very different mood altogether. What about the word promote? Well, that might take us down a path of delegation or turning outward, condescending to others, going around telling people what they ought to be doing, being critical of them without having done the obedience ourselves and to make the issue someone else's problem altogether. Now, should we advocate for justice? Of course we should. But few things in life are more universally revolting than hypocrisy. And it's an unfortunate stigma of the Christian faith and of many faiths in general that we produce people who are all about telling others what they ought to be doing without doing it themselves. And that is not what the commandment is here. Christianity is not a spectator sport. It is on you to be just. That's the commandment of Micah 6.8. You go out and you act justly. In your relationships, when people wrong you, whatever they're doing, whatever they're getting wrong, it is on you to be just in that relationship. In your business dealings, whether you're dealing with people who are being honest and straightforward with you or not, it is on you to be the one who's just in your business dealings. In your family, with your resources, with whatever it is that God has put in your grasp, the commandment is you be just, no matter what everybody else in the world is doing. Now, is that difficult? Of course it is. And sometimes it's very costly. Some business people in the room might be aware of what you stand to lose if you're the only person playing the game fairly and everybody else is cheating. Why go through all that trouble? Why put up with that? And what do these past two weeks on identity have anything to do with this command? Well, here's the connection to identity. When you understand who you are, who God has called you to be, you start to discover who he has called everyone else around you to be. When you understand the value that he has invested in you, you start to understand that every person you encounter in this world has been given those same gifts and established with that same value. When you see how Christ has loved you and sacrificed for you, at some point it's going to dawn on you that every person you encounter, every person who cuts you off in traffic, every person who angers you in your office, Jesus loves them just as much as he loves you. That realization about who you are and who the people are around you, that has got to change the way that you see people. It has to, if you believe it. So what does a child of God who believes these things look like? How do they conduct themselves? How do they believe, behave? What does someone who truly believes they are created in God's image, invested with great value and purpose and love, with eternal value, what do they look like? And how does that identity shape them and their behavior towards others? Well, you begin to understand who you are dealing with as you walk through life. That everything about your own identity, goodness, value, purpose, is true for everyone around you. And as a result, you become someone who desires to be just in all their dealings because all your dealings are toward and for people that God loves. So the second commandment, to love mercy. There's a, there's a picture here. I don't know if it's going to come out easily. That's probably not good enough. The next picture will give it to you. But there's a movie that I love. Uh, I'm, I'm increasingly a little guilty before the Lord for how many extremely violent movies I love. I'm not sure that's a great thing. But the movie is Braveheart. Uh, and I'll try not to spoil too much. If you haven't seen it, you go see that movie. Um, 
but without wanting to spoil too much, there's this main character named William Wallace, who's a bit of a rabble-rouser. And he falls in love with a beautiful young woman in his village. And because of his attention and interaction with her, even against having been given no permission by her father or her mother whatsoever, he still pursues her and ends up being defiant towards the English, and it ends up costing her her life. And so because of his interaction with her, she gets killed by the English. And he arrives at her uh, memorial service with her parents standing there and walks over to them and kneels in front of them in grief, terribly, terribly guilty for having brought this down on their daughter and basically puts himself at the mercy of the father. And the father reaches out to him for a moment and you see him clenching his fist, trying to contain his fury. This, this fool has gotten his daughter, his beloved child killed and is now kneeling at his feet. But finally he does at last reach out and gently touch his head. And there's this beautiful detail. That's, that's usually what's memorable. I, I watched it again recently. I didn't, I didn't catch that in the very next scene, he's not, he's not gently touching. He's got a handful of the dude's scruff. And he's just like yanking on that thing, just everything he could do not to rip the guy's head off. But he's still, he's still choosing not to exact vengeance on this young man. And there's just a beautiful snapshot of the difficulty of mercy. Mercy is hard, man. The grief on the mother's face is just, it's brutal. But this is mercy. They had every right, every reason to exact revenge on this man who went against their witches to the death of their daughter. But he shows mercy. It's not easy, but it's what we are called to, and it's what we're called to love. There's a, uh, there's a parable in the Bible that I think is the most perfect demonstration of the importance of mercy shown to us and what we are then to do with it in turn. I'm going to read it. It's from Matthew 18. It's the parable of the unmerciful servant. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before the king. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, exponentially less than the debt that he had just been forgiven. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But the other servant refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay back the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. 
Now, I realize uh, in our time, in our day, preaching on sin is not nearly as popular as it used once to be. We don't like being told that we're guilty in our culture. We don't like being told that there's anything wrong with us or that we're anything short of amazing and beautiful and perfect in every way. Consider how many conceptions of right and wrong and how even the idea of right and wrong are regularly challenged in our culture. But if being loved, forgiven, and reconciled is a part of our identity, we have to reckon with the need for that reconciliation. That reconciliation and forgiveness and restoration exist for a reason. They exist because of our sinful nature. The parable of the unmerciful servant is a perfect illustration of why. As we understand who we are and how God has been gracious towards us, we should be a people who love mercy. Again, few things are more universally revolted by atheists and people of faith alike than hypocrisy. How can we, as we come to understand our own sinful ways and how far God has gone to forgive us, how can we fail to be a people who love mercy? Now, just a moment ago, I said there's more to biblical justice than I could probably cover here in a single sermon. Justice really deserves its own series, and I'm sure I'll get to do that at some point, probably repeatedly in the future. But this mention of mercy directly on the heels of justice is just too conspicuous not to consider for a moment. I want to take a moment and propose for this contemplation just a basic definition of justice. Again, there might be 20 ideas rolling around the room, but just for the purpose of my point, let's start with the idea that justice is the work of setting things right. That's what justice is. Now, there's a conception of justice that's prominent in the world. In fact, it's woven into most human laws. It's an idea of retributive justice, eye for an eye. You hurt me, I get to hurt you back. You take from me, I take from you. You make me suffer, I make you suffer in return. That's how you set things right, pain for pain, loss for loss. The problem with that conception of Justice is that mercy is not compatible with retributive justice. You cannot take an eye and also not take an eye. You cannot exact vengeance and also not exact vengeance. Those two things are mutually exclusive as concepts. So is God contradicting himself here? He's just commanded us to do justice and love mercy. Is that even possible? Well, I propose this idea that God's conception of justice, biblical justice, is not merely retributive in nature, and thank the Lord for that. The Bible declares that the wages of sin is death. Justice in response to our sin would be death, and yet here we stand, praise God. We deserve that death, yet here we are. Did God fail the test of justice by sparing us with his mercy? I don't think so, because God's justice is not retributive, but restorative in nature. When you are hurt by somebody, the world sees one person in need of restitution. The victim needs to get something back. The aggressor needs to have something taken away. The victim has been hurt and the aggressor needs to be hurt in retaliation. But God sees something different. God sees two people in need of restoration. You've been hurt and God does not intend that you would be hurt. So God wishes to make you whole, to restore you, the victim. But your aggressor, the one who has hurt you, God not, did not intend that they would be someone hurting others either. And oftentimes, that violence, that act of cruelty, 
comes from a pain that they have already been carrying with them. The aggressor is also someone in need of restoration back to the will of God. They too are in need of that grace. When God sets things right, he addresses everyone involved, not just the victim. God's justice is a restoring justice that seeks to reconcile all parties back to right relationship with each other and to him. That vision of justice is not only compatible with mercy, it requires it. Mercy is a mandatory feature of restorative justice. Restorative justice cannot function without it. To do God's justice God's way, you must love mercy. And to love mercy, you must recognize and understand that you are a sinner in need of a savior. But praise the Lord, you've got one. Through faith by grace in Christ alone, you are offered forgiveness of all your sins and salvation instead of retribution and death. You are offered restoration and life. God's justice is a restorative justice. His people practice that same form of justice and love the same mercy by which they have been saved. So let's look at the final piece of this commandment. Walk humbly with your God. And I'll take us back to the reading of the word today, which I think is a great expansion on this idea. This is out of John 15 again. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, if you do not continue walking humbly with me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you do remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. So my undergrad was in computer science, and, and I remember very little of that associate's degree. That would have been 2001, 2002. It was a while ago. The thing that I remember as if it happened yesterday was my first day in programming class. My professor, uh, Dr. Henry, stepped up in front of the class and began to teach us about programming and about functions and methods. Now, I won't try to lay that out for you and bore all of you to tears, except to say that a function or a method in software is like a repeatable task. It's something that you're gonna need to do a lot of. So you write it in the code once, and whenever you need to do it, you just call it. You say, do that thing again, whatever you called that thing, rather than having to write it out every single time. And a good way to think about a practical function is something that you will always need access to or do frequently. And the example he gave us was think about a car. What does a car need to be able to do at its most basic fundamental level? Whether it's a $50,000 car or a $10,000 car or a Hummer, whatever it is, what do all cars need to be able to do? What's some practical baseline function without which a car just is not a car? And so he wrote up on the board, how about drive without hitting things? That's pretty important. You don't want to just be able to go, you want to be able to go and be controlled and not collide with everything that you see in front of you. Every car, no matter where it's going or how fast it's getting there, it needs to be able to drive without hitting things. That's the basic, most reducible thing to start every other thing that you would build off of it. I think here in this last instruction, to walk humbly with your God, we're kind of given that as a building block. It's the third thing that's said, but it kind of sets the foundation for everything else. 
How do you learn to do justice? You've got you to walk humbly with your God. You've got to see how God does justice. You have to pay attention to the way that he acts in creation. How do you learn to love mercy? You've got to walk humbly with your God. You've got to remember that you're not entitled to his grace, that this is a tremendous gift. That's the baseline function. That's the, if you don't get anything else right, get this right action. Walk humbly with me. Watch me. Get to know who I am. Get to know who you are. And the rest of this will follow. The truth of our identities is found only in God and in his word. It's not found on Twitter. Justice is not most clearly defined by politicians or by musicians or by movie stars promoting whatever they're promoting in a given moment. But rather it's found in God and in his word. In him we were fearfully and wonderfully made. By him we were invested with great worth and purpose. And through his son we have been mercifully redeemed, restored unto the Father, for all eternity. We cannot know or become who we were made to be unless we remain in relationship with God. Likewise, we cannot embody God's restorative justice in the world or come to love mercy unless we are in relationship with him. In that steady, humble walk with the Lord, we come to know who he is. We are reminded of who we are, and we are called to be representatives of his kingdom here on earth, doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly in his name and unto his glory. That is who he made us to be. So when he was still with them before his crucifixion, Jesus gathered his disciples in an upper room around a meal. I love how much of God's instruction takes place around food. In fact, the first thing he teaches Adam and Eve is what's good to eat in the garden. And so here's this important moment with Jesus and his disciples just before he's about to die and leave them. And he holds up some bread and he holds up some wine. And Pastor Sean is great at reminding us of this. He reaches for things that just about anybody would have, fruit and bread. Whether you're poor or wealthy, you've probably got some fruit and some bread somewhere. And those are the two implements that he decides to represent him. The bread represents his body, which would shortly be broken for them. And the wine represented his blood, which would be shed for all of our sins. And he gave this to them, and he asked them to partake of these elements in remembrance of him and what he was giving to them in love and mercy and grace. And so we do this as he taught his disciples in remembrance of him. Uh, We're going to be doing this with crackers and non-alcoholic wine. But the way we do this is we come down the center aisle, partake of a cracker, just dip it in the wine, and we'll hold on to it. We'll go back to our seats around the outer aisles until everybody has it. And then we partake as one family together in remembrance of him. So please feel free to come down. Take a moment to remember who God is, who I am, and there you go, redeem my Lord again. Take a moment to remember who God is, who I am, and there you go, Lifting my load again. No longer am I held by the yoke of this world. Come up under the yoke of Jesus. His yoke is easy, his burden is so light. No longer am I held by the yoke of this world. Come up under the yoke of Jesus. 
yoke is easy, it's burden so light. Take a moment to remember who God is, who I am, and there you go, lifting my load again. Take a moment to remember who God is, who I am, and there you go, lifting my load again. No longer. Yoke is easy, his burden is so light. Well, Father God, as we do this in remembrance of you, as you commanded, we pray that you would help us to understand more with each repetition of this beautiful sacrament, the full extent and magnitude of your love, of your justice and your mercy, which played out in its fullest magnitude on the cross for our sake. Father God, we were not given a punitive response. You did not lash out in vengeance and wipe us all out, Father God, but we were embraced and forgiven and given a way to come home, God. We thank you for that, for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, and his blood shed for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You lifted my load, you lifted my load again. You lifted my load, you lifted my load again. You lifted my load, you lifted my load again. We're going to wait just a minute and invite the young folk to come participate as well. Your love carries, your love carries me through all the valleys and the darkest of places. Your love carries, your love carries me through all the valleys. I want to unmute myself. There we go. I want to invite any of you uh, today who would love to come forward for prayer for anything. If you're struggling with issues of identity, uh, if you are having a hard time feeling your worth or your value, if you don't sense a purpose or a trajectory to your life, uh, if God feels distant or difficult to understand for any reason, if you'd love prayer, we'd love to pray with you. We'll have some people up here in front after the service. You're welcome to come join us. Reminder again, we've got the spiritual warfare class downstairs after the service starting at 1145. If you'd stand with me now, I'd love to bless you as we go. Father God, I pray that your hand would rest upon these people. Lord, that you would stir their hearts, that their souls would know their worth that they would walk into the world with a renewed sense that you have established their value. They don't have to fight for it. They don't have to manufacture it. They don't have to earn it. You have paid an immeasurable price for them. And so they are immeasurably valuable. 
They are fearfully and wonderfully made. They don't have to invent a new identity. They are free to be exactly who they are. You are very good at your work, Father God. Help them to be more familiar every day with those essential inmost truths about who you say they are. Help them to walk in the fullness of who you made them to be for your glory and for a needy world. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Bless you all.